Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we've got returning to the show from Illinois, our friend Austin Channing. Grand Rapids, Michigan. Did I say Chicago? Mm-hmm. I did. That's my bad. Did you, okay. did you live in Chicago at some point? I did for about seven years. See, I remember those things. I just, uh, I couldn't imagine you leaving the Windy City, but that happened. I still can't believe it myself sometimes. But you're at you're at Calvin College now. I am. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Our old friend. And your husband's in the background today. He is. <laughs> He's, we're hanging out in the office together today. That's exciting. That's exciting. Now, I was sitting around just thinking to myself, it's been a while since Austin and I talked, and pretty much I thought we solved all racial tension in America the last time I we mean, talked. Seriously. And Why it's, don't people listen to us? It's, it's like they weren't even listening. I don't know what's wrong with them. We created this wonderful podcast. I know. And I don't I, understand. I figured we'd kind of pretty much fix the world and all right? the problems, at least America, not the whole right. world, but America. And lo and behold... It, there, there's still racial tension. Why has that? Why is that still there? I don't understand. It's such a mystery. Okay, let me tell you the real story. Yeah. Okay, we started talking about this podcast in the middle of June. Mm-hmm. I think I emailed you for the first time. <laughs> I it was a I think it was a Wednesday night. Yeah. And I had my phone off. I was driving from my house to the movie theater that I go to, which is literally half a mile from my house. <laughs> and I was thinking, I haven't talked to Austin in a long time. Mm. I don't know why I was thinking about you. I was going to see Jurassic Park, which is a great movie, but uh, it has nothing to do with you. And so I was just thinking, yeah, I should talk to Austin. I go watch the movie. I get out. I check my phone. And that's when the shooting in Charleston yep. happened. Yep. And I was just like, oh, heartbreak. So if you can remember back to a month ago. Yeah. I think you wrote something on your blog about being in a funk after that. Is that right? I, I felt like I immediately felt like whatever illusions I was trying to hold on to, that there was a definitive mark between 2015 and the civil rights movement ended. It just ended. It did in that moment. It did not feel to me like there was some wall of separation between what was happening in the sixties and what was happening right now. Really? Tell me more about that. Um, so for years and years, I've been reading about the 16th street church bombing, right? Um, going to watch Selma, which starts um, off with that bombing, right? Which starts off with that bombing and was a beautiful portrayal of a portion of the civil rights movement. Um, watching Eyes on the Prize, which is an amazing documentary on the civil rights movement. And I realized as soon as the first tweet popped up from MSNBC that there was a shooting at a black church, I immediately felt that history is not repeating itself. We are still living it. We're still living in a nation that has not wrestled with, not come to grips with the devastation that white supremacy causes. Okay, there's the whole podcast right there. Let's try to unpack (laughs) me. My goodness, there's a lot. Okay, we'll get to the white supremacy later. Um, We'll have to talk about that. I would kind of like to skip over that part if we're allowed to, but I don't feel like I can. Um, it does. Okay. For some of us, we think the civil rights movement, that was the sixties, you know, uh, you know, Dr. King's, I had a dream speech in a lot of ways was the capstone of that. That was back then. How is that still going on? Why do you think it hasn't, uh, ended? Yeah. So throughout African-American history, Every time there is um, a gain made for African-Americans, there is almost always an immediate reaction to subtract from those gains. Okay, can you give me some examples? Yep. So we um, end slavery. Mm -hmm. 
right? And we have this gorgeous area era of reconstruction, but America can't handle it. And so immediately we get uh, all these laws that are the black codes, i.e. Jim Crow, yeah. right? So we, so we make this gain and then we have to kind of pull it back. And we've seen this happen even with the civil rights movement. So speaking of Selma, um, the Voting Rights Act, beautiful piece of work, but has essentially been gutted since it was signed. Um, can, you, can you explain first for those of us who aren't familiar with how it's been gutted? I wish that I could. My husband behind me <laughs> do a much better job at that than I would. Fair enough, fair enough. Luke, would it be better if he came as always you could just hear his voice? Yeah, just have him come on over here. Hey, what's up, Tommy? How you doing, man? Hey, what's going on, man? Hey, thanks for coming over. Oh, no problem. Okay, so the question, you, your wife mentioned uh, voting acts, of, uh, the, uh, the laws have been kind of uh, undone. So I just want to know examples of kind of how that's happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, to my... Uh... Uh, to my sort of familiarity, familiarity with it, there was a Supreme Court case uh, that came out recently, uh, I would say probably within the last maybe year or two, where the Supreme Court essentially has allowed certain, I can't even really say they were just southern states, but they there were several states who, or which, could not change any of their voting rights uh, laws without first getting prior um, sort of uh, go-ahead from the Department of Justice. And those states could not move ahead with changing their voting rights uh, policies or practices because of their history and discrimination. Um, Now, what the Supreme Court has recently done was say, you know, because of diversity and because the makeup of those states don't look the same as they did then, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, that those states essentially could change voting policies locally without getting prior approval from the Department of Justice. So I wish I could name some of those states off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure there are like several southern states uh, it may even be Ohio and uh, maybe a few Midwest states. I'm not exactly sure which ones, but so essentially um, those states now can make changes in their voting rights policies in terms of changing the, uh, uh, the polling place, um, uh, uh, changing the times, mm-hmm. you know, doing different things like that. They can do those things without getting prior approval, approval from the Department of Justice. Now, before... Uh, those states couldn't make those kinds of changes without getting that prior prior approval. But, you know, given the Supreme Court makeup now, uh, uh, the Supreme Court essentially said, you know what, these particular states can make those kinds of changes if they want um, because things have changed. You're not living back in the 60s and the 70s. And there's really no need to get the Department of Justice to give some sort of go ahead for those states to make those changes. Gotcha. Gotcha. Tommy, thanks for the answer, man. No, no problem, man. Thanks for dropping in. Nice to meet you. <clears throat> that was nice. So those, and I know that in um, specific states, there are still uh, different, uh, all the different aspects of voting continue to be attacked. So uh, what forms of ID do people have to have? How many yeah. forms of ID do people have to have? Um, where do they um, go to vote? How far do they have to travel to be able to vote? Um, so, uh, and those are, those are kind of done under the premise that we want to make sure there's no voting fraud. That's correct. correct. Now I don't pretend to be an expert on politics or voting, but even though the, the rebuttal to that is the cases of voter fraud are almost non-existent. It's very minuscule. Yes. Okay. And so this is an example of how there's progress and then it gets kind of undercut, taken back. You got it. You got it. And so we want to honor the ways that um, those progressions have been made, particularly for the African-American community. But every time there's the sort of pullback, right? So we celebrate, yay! But then um, a lot of people aren't aware. I mean, I couldn't even name the ways that yeah. right, this voting ass has been pulled back. I just know that it has been. Um, and so, so that often can make it feel secular, make um, history feel circular. Mm-hmm. And 
Yeah. So you get this cycle of, okay, there's progress. And maybe you'd look right now and say, we had a two-term African-American president. I mean, that is serious progress. And I was just showing my six-year-old daughter last night, oh, this is um, our president. And she obviously knew Barack Obama was already. And mm-hmm. she had a little iPad, uh, an app, ABC Mouse app on her iPad. And it talked about uh, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln as important presidents. And I was explaining mm-hmm. why. And I said, you know, this culminates in a lot of ways with President Obama. And so you have this beautiful family in the White House, regardless of your view on politics. That's progress that we now have an African-American family in the White House. That's progress. Yes. I don't care if Republican, Democrat, that's progress. And then it, all of a sudden you see Baltimore, you see Charleston, you see all this and you go – we haven't really progressed that much. Right. Or, or is this more of these activities, th- these terrible, atrocious acts are now magnified because we're more aware of it? Or do you think this is something that, well, that's always been there and so it's no progress? I, uh, okay. So do I think there's been progress? Yes. Mm-hmm. I do not live under Jim Crow. Right. When yeah. I get on a bus, I can sit wherever I want to sit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I, which is why I'm really careful to say that it felt like history had just right closed okay. the store. Right. I, I don't know that I would argue fully um, that, well, I could not argue that we are experiencing the exact same thing as Fair enough. happening in the civil rights movement. Right. But it doesn't feel like we're in this utopia in which we move past yes. it. <laughs> it's still there. It's still there. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say um, that it has always been there. It just continues to change forms. So, um, so I have a cousin, um, a significant portion of my family that lives in um, almost an entirely African-American neighborhood. Um, and I regularly heard stories from him about being stopped in the middle of the street, of being strip searched, of being assumed to have drugs on him, whether he did or not, um, of just being physically violated. Um, but I couldn't prove it. I don't have a camera. He didn't have a cell phone that would record what was happening. Um, and, and I would say that most people in the African-American community know that this happens, right? It's why we teach our sons and daughters how yeah. to behave, how to act, what to do, what to say, what not to say, how to control your anger, right? All these things, because we know that it's happening. Yeah. But for the first time in history, we now all carry our own personal video cameras, which allows us to prove what we know to be true. Yeah. And we have a medium to share it with such a greater number of people, right? So Twitter and Facebook have made our ability to share with people outside of our own community what we see in here as well. Yeah, I had um, a friend of mine who's he's a pastor in Atlanta, and he's got a, a couple kids, and he has two boys who are the same age. Mm-hmm. Uh, one's adopted, one's African-American, and he's told stories, multiple stories that just it, it personify what you're talking about, where... Both kids are in the car. One gets pulled out. One's in handcuffs, and he's not even driving. And you want to guess the race of the person? That's right. Guy. And obviously, there are plenty. And, and every time I said that, I want to say there are plenty of police officers who are really trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you remember the story of what happened in McKinney? Um, yes. A month or two ago, I literally was in McKinney. I live uh, thirty minutes west of McKinney right now. Oh. I did a wedding in McKinney the night before. Get out and. So it, it's, and then you see the police officer and you have, and I'm not an expert in the situation, but it sure seems like you have a handful of officers who were there that did the right thing. And then you have one who acts a fool and it's just, ugh. And that is what's terrifying. So I, I tell you what is more terrifying is that there were other policemen around who I would really want to say mm. are good cops who were being respectful, who were trying to really get a handle on the situation and figure out what was going on. But none of them stopped the rogue cop. Oh, yeah. Hmm. None of them calmed him down. None of them pulled him aside. None of them said, hey, you know, why don't you go sit in the car? I know you've had kind of a rough day. You had a couple things happen this morning. Right? That is what's scary, that if you have a bad cop, quote, unquote, bad cop, quote, unquote, good cop, but the good cop won't say anything to the bad cop, then we still have a problem on our hands, right? Yeah, it's kind of so hard to say. the fact that you're not doing bad doesn't mean that you're doing good. Hmm. That's, that's fair. That's, yeah, it's hard to say that they're good cops if there's a situation 
like that and they're not stopping it. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, so all this is going on and you're thinking white supremacy is still going on in America. <laughs> yep. Now, I don't have like the white hood on. I don't have that somewhere <laughs> in the closet. Yeah. I'm not rocking the KKK yeah. tattoo on my chest. Uh, I, I don't do any of that. I yeah. I saw a video of a journalist friend of mine from Boston posted about uh, there's a Klan rally. Yes. And they're just saying, we're just trying to promote heritage, not hate. And you have these gentlemen saying these terrible things. And I'm like, that's that's not me. Like, and I and so I know you wrote this in your blog a while back, but I'm the white guy who wants to say, hey, just know it's not all of us. It's it's not me. <laughs> like, I'm not doing that. I don't have the clan stuff. I'm not, you know, I'm not teaching hate to my kids. But somehow there's still, I need to inspect myself yeah. for white supremacy. Yeah. So white the term white supremacy makes a lot of people uncomfortable, which is why I use it. <laughs> me, me included. Yes. Check. Yes. And <clears throat> excuse me. And the truth is that America was built on the concept of white supremacy. Our relationships were defined by a system of white supremacy. Slavery existed. Slavery was justified. Let me say that. Slavery was justified through white supremacy. And the truth is white supremacy is a really easy concept. It's actually not sort of a complicated <laughs> definition. It's, it's really the idea that white people are superior to other people. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's yeah. not complicated, yeah. right? Um, um, but because we sing songs like, um, you know, Jesus loves little children and, you know, we, we, Hold on, what's wrong with Jesus loves little children? It's a beautiful song. Okay. It just isn't happen to be one that we live out. So maybe Jesus loves all of us, oh. but yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. know how good we do. And actually, but, okay. So how does, how do we, out. how do we not love all the little children? Of the world. Yeah, so I say McKinney is a good example of that. We didn't love that little girl. Gosh, she has a little girl too. Yeah. She's a girl. She's 14 years old. Okay, so there is a difference in the relationships of, of white people and black people than white people and Hispanics, white people and Oriental people because of the way that African Americans came to America. And that relationship is substantially different than anyone else who migrated in here like Europeans did Correct. years before. And so there's always going to be... There's history there that isn't replicable with any other white to any other relationship. So that's okay. underpinning everything. Is that fair to say? It is fair to say. The only thing I would add is that white supremacy learned how to adopt to do what it needed to do. So um, so Native Americans know a thing or two about white supremacy. Oh, yeah. That's right? True. It doesn't look the way African Americans experience it in its entirety, Right. But mass genocide, the schools, quote unquote, schools that were formed, the yeah. degradation of culture, the stereotypes, the continued mascots that are problematic on so many levels. Right. Those are all examples of yeah. white people believing that whites are best and whites know what culture is and whites mm -hmm. know how we should live and whites know what civility looks like and what mm -hmm. culture should look like, right? So white supremacy simply adopts with other people of color. Hmm. We are going to have a point in the podcast where you are going to say nice things about white people, though, right? <laughs> We're gonna, like country music or something. Come on, there has to be something so nice. Thing, here's the thing about white supremacy is that we all have to wrestle with it. So, um, so, but white people wrestle with it in a different way because you benefit from white supremacy, the way that I have to reconcile with white supremacy or wrestle against white supremacy rather is believing that I am equal to white people. So I walk into an all white space and I have to remind myself that I am equal, that my culture is good, that the way I talk is fine, that the white people in the room do not get to define who I am, that I get to do that. Have I mean, how have you felt? I, I, that seemed, that's foreign to me. I've never, I've never, <laughs> I've never felt like I'm not, because I'm a white guy. I mean, I'm a white American. So sure. I've, I've got an, 
a good hand dealt to me, okay? I mean, I'm not a what I've I've done well in the world with the gene pool that I was born into, which sure. has nothing to do with me. Tell me, can you explain that a little bit more? Like, what does it mean to be? Obviously, you're a woman now, but maybe when you're a, a girl, you walk into an environment, you're the only African American there. Do you all automatically think I don't belong here? Is that what's going on in your self talk? Yes, either that or um, either that I don't belong here. Let me give you a different example. Okay, give me a different example. So, um, although that's not necessarily untrue, I just am not sure how to unpack it in this moment. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, my name is Austin. That's unusual. It's my middle name. Is it really? That's yeah, funny. Yeah. So, super unusual for a girl, kind of unusual for a black person. I know a few Austins who are black, but not many. Austin uh, Rivers. Right. And um, nephew of Michael Jackson. His name is Austin. Anyway. There's a guy named Austin Jackson who plays oh, with actually, the Austin Brown. I think his name is Austin Brown. Is he? I think okay. so. But we've all, like, anyway, all male very names. Very few. Yes. Male, I mean, very few female. It, it, it was one of the names that we thought about with our daughters. I love it. Yeah. So I am at, like fully embracing my name at this point in my life. Okay. Fully digression. Um, it took me a while. Okay. So I submit my resume. I walk into a group interview and everybody's face is confused when I walk in the room. Because people expected that I would be a white male. Mm -hmm. So I'm standing in the room where we're supposed to be doing introductions. And instead, everyone is looking at my resume to figure out if they should have known that I was not a white male. Mm -hmm. Is that more because of the name, like the gender associated with the name? Or is it because of your ethnicity? Yeah, I've suspected it's both. Yeah. But the fact that people have to sort of like look at my resume and figure out, <laughs> does this matter? Is this okay? Does this change what I've read? Would I have read this differently if I had oh, known? Yeah. Right? You, can, you can see people's wheels turning, trying to figure out whether or not it matters that oh, I am wow. not what they expected. Yeah, that's If we had actually conquered white supremacy and maybe patriarchy as well, then me walking into the room and not being what was expected would not matter a bit. And they would just see for who you are instead of that. But it matters. That's, oh. Okay, so white supremacy. Yep. I want to think I've conquered it because I don't have the Klan stuff, okay? I'm not rocking the KKK hood anytime. And I feel like I'm, I'm beyond that because I've, I've, I've read Cone, okay? So I've, I've done my work. I've, I've done, I've read the, compare, what is it, the, the lynching tree and the cross, Okay. I read that. I wasn't assigned it. I read it. So I feel like I've got some credibility. I'm not a white supremacist. You can't be white supremacist and read James Cone. I've gotten an email from James Cone. I can't be racist, right? <laughs> right. Isn't that true? Like there, that's somewhere in the universe. That's a true thing. If you've got an email from him, you can't be racist. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, but my- so, yes. So this is really interesting because of all those rallies that have been happening. All the, well, I don't know if there's been a lot or not, but there've been a lot of Confederate flag rallies. And I just recently there are saw too a many. rally too many, okay. right? Yeah. <laughs> too many regardless. So I have, um, an author page on Facebook where I try really hard to post, um, relevant things happening in the world of racial justice. And I debated with myself over whether or not to post all these rallies. And I decided not to, because I think it's really easy to look at those and say, well, at least I'm not doing that. Yeah, that's completely fair. At least I'm not burning a cross. And that's, <laughs> and that's what I've been saying. That's what I've been saying for the last five minutes. <laughs> this to me feels like a really low bar. <laughs> <laughs> that is very low. Okay, my, I've got a friend named Richard Beck who writes yeah. a blog. And he said something about Charleston. He said, this is different from Baltimore because there's no debate about this. This is clearly good versus evil. There's no... Well, you know, were the police officer doing the right thing? Were they right? It's clearly one person is did a complete evil thing, and you have innocent victims. And he says, in moments of moral ambiguity, I'm not quoting him. I'm just saying what I thought he said. In moral ambiguity, it's easy to revert back to our racism and assume in ambiguous moments that the people who look like me are right. And it's in those moments that your, as you might say, white supremacy comes out. You're not in your head. You got it. And it happens in small ways. So if we go back to um, your earlier question about what it feels like to be a black woman to walk into an all-white space, let's make that all-white space church. Mm -hmm. 
the way and let's let's make a diverse church let's make it a multicultural church let's do it let's walk into a multicultural church and all the pastors are white mm-hmm. the board of directors are white everyone who preaches is white the music is white contemporary music we do gospel songs on mlk day we are afraid to talk about baltimore and Right. Like unless it's uh-huh. a Charleston situation, we're not going to touch it. So we don't talk about Mar- Trayvon Martin. We don't talk about Michael Brown. We don't. Right. Because there's a little ambiguity there. We got to wait for all the facts to come in. Right. But the, yeah. the whole system of the church appears to be built on the idea that white people know best how to run this church. Because that's the. Because problem. that's who's in power. But OK. But what about the person who who doesn't want to speak out in a situation that you don't have all the facts. Like, it seems like that's a good thing. If you know, if your first glance at, let's say Charleston, like first glance is, well, you could say, Oh, this is just a, you know, white kid who, you know, it's not racially motivated. And that could, and so you don't want to speak out and say, we have just, you know, one white kid who's mentally off or whatever. Mm. But you know, the, if I would have spoke out at first, that's what I might've said. If I didn't, you know, know what the flag on his sweater was saying, sure. and you didn't know what his website said. So isn't there like some benefit of trying to figure out exactly what's going on first? I think there is a benefit to figuring out what's happening um, before declaring um, um, a, 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 sorry, so specifically for a church. Yeah. I won't answer this universally. Yeah. Um, so for a church, what should I, we do? Yeah, I think it's entirely appropriate to say this thing happened. Not sure what to do about that yet, but sure think y'all should know that this should happen, right? That this has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is going to be a little controversial, but I think it is entirely appropriate to prioritize the people of color in the room. Okay. What usually happens is we prioritize white people in the room. We don't want to make white people upset. We don't, you know, we don't want them to get up and walk out. We don't want them to stop giving. We don't want the emails that are going to come if we say something. Mm-hmm. And typically, not every time, but typically what people of color, particularly black people, are looking for isn't for the pastor to get up and start railing on white supremacy, particularly in the moment of the trauma, the, the moment that it, whatever has happened has happened. What we're often looking for is just a space to grieve and to mourn because we're pretty sure we know what happened. Um, And it, and it hurts and it's painful. And, um, and to, to have to go to church and either have it not addressed at all or um, to have someone actively say, well, we refuse to talk about this until we know more can be really painful. Hmm. So it's better just to put it out there and say, we don't know what's going on. We know you said this before and I've never forgot, but you said there's, there's something that goes off like a bell that rings when you sense like, we've heard this story before. There's something that doesn't seem right about this. Like your spider Mm -hmm. sense goes off Mm -hmm. and just to be able to create space to name that. Right. We're, We're seeing that happen with, um, Sandra Bland right now. So days ago, we know that she's, um, she, we know that she's in a jail cell on a Monday morning and she's dead. We have no idea what happened on her trip. We just know that she's on her way to a new job that she's really excited about. That's all we know. We know she's on her way to a new job that she's really excited mm-hmm. about. And we know that she's dead over the weekend or after the weekend is over. We have no details. We're still waiting for more details to come in, but we have already started campaigns to figure out what those details are because Mm -hmm. we know something is not right here. And it's because many of us have been through or know someone who has had interactions with the law that are quite frankly, not legal and that reinforce that white supremacy is still alive and well. And so the, the, the church leaders need to create an environment for there to be mourning. What do you, mm-hmm. when you're going through a situation and yeah. you see this and, and your response to first, it should be mourning. Okay. Maybe anger, whatever mourning looks like for you. I, I'm not prescribing what's the right thing to do, but yeah. you're, you're responding to this. 
how how can church create spaces for you to deal to lament mm-hmm. in a service when there are white people there and, and people who are confused about the situation, maybe people who don't realize how much white supremacy is still a part of their thought process? Yeah. So I think trying to do it all in one service is probably not right. <laughs> this is probably yeah. not even a good goal. Like, why do that to yourself? <laughs> yeah. Good call. So I think it's appropriate, for example, after Charleston, um, I went to church the very next day in the middle of the day um, and just sat in the sanctuary because that's just what I needed to do. So even something as simple as making your sanctuary, your church space available could be huge Hmm. for people. Um, I know that there were, um, in my church too, um, that there were specific prayer services that happened where that was all we were going to talk about. (laughs) Charleston was it. There was no other point to the service other than for people to come and say, I'm really hurt. I'm really grieved. Right. And then over the Sunday, then it was sort of addressed from the pulpit for the understanding of the larger congregation. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that there can absolutely be steps in different services or different programs or different town halls or what have you um, to be able to give people the space that they need. I don't think it's helpful and is too overwhelming to try and do all of those things in one service. Yeah, that, that, that's just good church 101 stuff. Don't try to do everything <laughs> in every service. And I think that's, that's really helpful. Yeah. So uh, obviously one of the things that has been just a, a great declaration of this is God working is the way that the church in South Carolina has been able to say we forgive, which I know something like there was a story about someone saying, uh, yeah, I saw the gunman and that was clearly God working. I was like, well, if God was working there, why wasn't he working before the gunman walked into that? Why didn't someone, you know, so the whole idea of like prescribing this is God's action in a tragedy, I think is probably an activity that you might not want to do. But if you're going to do something, let's go with the, the miraculous statement that the family's made of forgiveness. And I think that's beautiful, but I wonder, and maybe this is just my fear, but like right away, do you think in some ways that could have been elevated to a point where people didn't feel like they had the ability to grieve and mourn? What, what, what was your take when you saw that? I, I'm, yeah. I'm assuming you saw those clips. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. So um, so I think a number of things. You know, I actually started to write about this, and I didn't, so forgive me for the thoughts being a little bit still unformed. Um, the The first thing that I thought was these families are in the height of grieving. Yeah. And the, the, many of them may have still been in shock at that point. I'm not sure it was even real, as, as real as it's going to be, you know, next week when they pick up the phone and start dialing a family member's number and forget that their family member isn't here anymore, Ugh. right? Like, yeah. right? Like there are these waves of grief when somebody dies that traumatically, that quickly, um, and, and, and they're days, days out from having experienced this. So part of me um, wants to acknowledge that um, in their grief, they are being faced with this person. And in this moment, they have a decision to make. Mm -hmm. Am I going to carry this hatred or am I going to release him? Mm -hmm. And they choose to release him. And I, I, I understand that as, um, I understand that in the totality of black history in America. What do you mean? As black (laughs) African-Americans did not have the capacity to forgive some pretty incredible atrocities. Yeah. I don't want to finish that sentence. No, 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 no. It's a very good thing that um, black Americans are not retribute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but isn't the, isn't that part of the appeal that Dr. King had to white America? Is that we saw him? And I'm saying we as white America, we sure. saw him as the like this black angel giving us grace <laughs> yeah, instead right. of getting us the justice that we deserved. And so that's part of white America's fascination. Is you go, yeah, I'm taking what this guy's selling. Uh, <laughs> if uh, and obviously the you know the either or of Malcolm X and Dr. King 
is a little bit overstated as I think people have pointed their careers have kind of gone together towards the end. Uh, but with that being said, like Dr. King was a far better option than like a militant response. And so isn't that part of what white America loved about Dr. King? Yes. And, and I would say circling back to the question, it's also what white people loved about the forgiveness, right? That it, mm-hmm. there, there is a sense that, so what forgiveness ought to do Forgiveness ought to create the space for there to be justice, hmm. not for there to be vengeance, not for there to be retribution, um, as in, uh, I am suing you for, you know, what you did and emotional damages and this and that and the other, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. nothing left. Right. But that, but that forgiveness opens the space for justice to come in. Um, and vice versa, that when there is justice, that forgiveness then feels free and open and received. Yes. Mm-hmm. But too often when we talk about forgiveness, particularly forgiveness of black people on behalf of white people, yeah. that justice doesn't follow. And that is what stings. And it's why there were many people in the black community who were upset that the families were so quick to offer forgiveness because it felt like it was closing the door on justice. It felt like it was saying, well, look, the families forgive them. So like everything's good now. We're mm. all fine. But, if the families aren't mad, then why should anybody else be mad? Right. And I think that comes from black, the black community often forgiving and they're not being justice given in return. In what way has justice not been given? You, you've got a guy in handcuffs. He's going to, He's going to be in jail for a long time or he might be put to death. I don't know what's going to happen there. But mm-hmm. it seems like obviously the, the penal system cannot fix things, but it can punish someone. And that's the type of justice I think we're talking about here, right? Yeah, and we'll see how that unfolds. <laughs> I wish I could say that. I'm like, yeah, so you, you, up. But for example, on, you, you have so concern that see how this has unfolded so far. So we have countless numbers of unarmed black people who have died at the hands of the police and or say the, the um, oh, let's just stick with that. So number of people who are considered dangerous, who are, right? You have a white kid who has just murdered nine people and he gets McDonald's. Which some might say that is a way of trying to kill someone, making them eat <laughs> McDonald's. And so maybe that's what that is. But yeah, that is pretty bad. They, they so stop bad, and get him some admittedly. food. But right, so there's, yeah, there's okay. Um, that's yeah. So I'm, so I'm not saying that America won't do what's right in this situation, but it does still feel like the the reasoning given behind why we treat black people the way we do is not being given for white people who are actually doing mm. what black people have been claimed to be doing. So you're you're saying there's not a the story would have been completely different if you had a black guy and a white. Well, okay, let's just say. You're not expecting someone to get Burger King in their way home after they're getting arrested. If um, a black person walked into a white church and shot nine people, I doubt he'd get McDonald's on his way to the jail. Yeah, that is okay. That's yeah. I got nothing to say to that. <laughs> That's bad. And so, and so, you were hesitant at first to say that justice would have been served. Um, there's a terrible Burger King joke in there. Uh, have it your way right away or something that I should not make. But, and so like that is an example of why you have hesitance, hesitancy to say that he's going to get the type of justice that in the situation that the penal system should give. I do. And I'm, um, I'm hopeful. I, 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 eh, yeah, I guess I'm hopeful. Um, but it wouldn't be the first time that white people have gotten less or not at all for crimes that were committed. Yeah, I, I think you look at the statistics, and obviously it's disproportionately African American in our prison system. And uh, you know, Obama uh, was there just today or yesterday. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, his comment was, you know, a, a lot of us more teenagers make dumb mistakes, and I for one make dumb mistakes. And uh, if I didn't luck out, I mean, I could have gotten in trouble for them. And some of these are kids that do that, and their whole life is taken off course because of that. And yeah, I mean, it's okay. And so that's the question. So we're going to, you know, he's going to go through his trial, whatever that looks like. And 
who knows what defense will be given, right? Will it be mental illness? Will it be that he was indoctrinated by all these people and, you know, that he's young and shouldn't be held to the same, right? But I don't know. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to wait <laughs> and yeah. I'm going to watch and we're going to see. Okay. Yeah, the, I get it now. That's fair. Okay, so you have uh, you blogged about this today, and uh, we'll post this, and your blog would have been out for a while. But you talked about uh, okay, so white people come up to you and say, "Tell me what to do to fix this. <laughs> I want to fix this." Uh, right. And then you say that smells of the white savior <laughs> complex, yeah. which again, we're going to have to spend a longer time talking about how great white people are about something. Because, again, like this is white savior, white supremacy. It's kind of all wrapped together. But right. I'm a white guy. I want to help do my part yeah. to fix the situation. I want to I, I wanna do something. How is that the white savior complex coming out and poor old me trying to do my little part? Yeah, I want white people to do lots of things, lots and lots of things. Um, I uh, So you asking me, right? So we're sitting down. We're having a private conversation. And you say, hey, Austin, here's what I've read. I've been reading The Cross and the Lynching Tree. I've been moved by it. I got an email from James Cone, but it just doesn't feel like enough. What else do you think I could be doing? And then I could say to you, well, look, you've got this amazing podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That could be a cool thing to use in the Mm -hmm. fight towards racial justice, right? Yeah. That's a very different conversation because you and I know each other. Um. But to put on uh, Facebook right, or Twitter, hey, people, I'm white and I'm on board. Tell me what to do. That's weird. Hmm. Do you, does it sound like, uh, like a white person is just trying to get, to get like the seal of approval? Like, hey, he's a good one, right? I, I think that's part of it. I think part of them really want to know what to do. Mm-hmm. I think that there's no one in their lives that they can sit down and ask personally Hey, you've been in this for a while. What should I do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 my fear, what I was getting at in that um, second point of that, or like the white savior complex, is that I think um, sometimes, not every time, and which is why I'm careful to say sometimes. Sometimes, I think that white people hear stories about black people, about the um, health disparities, um, education disparities right? There are disparities all around us Mm -hmm. and think, man, I really want to help black people. Good starting point, not the ending point. Hmm. The ending point is, man, there's a lot that I need to deal with. (laughs) There's a lot of things, right? Um, Maybe I need to think about where I live. Maybe I need to think about how I vote. Maybe I need to think about what I post on Facebook. Maybe I need to think about the books I read. Maybe I need to think about how I run my church. Hmm. That would make worlds of difference. If white people thought, man, I really need to uproot white supremacy from my life. Let me figure out where and the ways that I can do that is a very different conversation from, oh my gosh, those poor black people. What can I do? Tell me what to do. How can I help you poor black people? Very different conversations. And that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah, yeah. I get the, and I love the line you say about uh, use whatever gifts, skills, talents to work where you are. If you're an artist, use your art. If you're a preacher, use your sermons. If you're a podcaster, use your podcast. And I think that's really, it, assuming people are truly trying to figure out what they can do, that's a great place. Like you use what you use what you got. Okay, I'm a writer, so yeah. I write yeah. <laughs> every now and again. I become a speaker, so and I speak. speak. Yeah, and let me be honest. Sometimes neither of those things feels like enough. I feel like I should be organizing things. I've, I have no gift for this, <laughs> but I feel like I should be doing it. I feel like mm-hmm. I should be at the prisons. I feel like I should be doing every after-school program that exists. I feel like I should be starting after-school programs, right? Yeah. And so there, there, there will always be, for those who are committed, there will always be this feeling that I'm not doing enough. There is so much to do, and I'm not doing enough. That's a very real feeling, and it's a real feeling for all of us. Yeah. But the question, tell me what to do, um, requires that I know who you are and what skills and talents, what your community is like, what your resources are like. And I don't, I don't know any of that. And so yeah. what to do has to be a conversation between, one, you and God, mm-hmm. but then also you and the people in your immediate, immediate community who know you. Yeah. 
Okay, let me talk about one thing that uh, has been done since Charleston. Mm-hmm. Obviously, right after Charleston, the whole thing about the rebel flag. Mm-hmm. You're from the north, right? I am. Okay, you, Detroit or Chicago, outside of Detroit, you know, Grand Rapids, yeah. whatever. Yep. Uh, you're a northern girl. I was yeah. born, not only do we have the same name, I'm from the north. I was born outside of Philadelphia. Actually, okay. West Philadelphia is where I was born and raised. Oh. <laughs> On the playgrounds where I spent most of my days. I got one little fight. Yeah, yeah. I got one little fight. And now I live in Texas. But so when I moved down south Mm -hmm. and I saw rebel flags after being born in Philadelphia, I was like, dude, are are we serious about this? Like, what's going on here? And it was just a normal part. And there are a lot of people who, um, not so much now, but when, you know, I hate to say how old I was, how many years ago it was when I first moved down south, but it was a long time ago. And it was in dorm rooms. Like it was in back of someone's truck. It was, you know, people had it. And you just go... As someone from the north, you go, dude, seriously, what's going on here? But as someone from the south, you said, this is just part of heritage, and this is being proud of being from the south. And so from you, as being a person from the north, you see what's happening, and you see them taking the flag down. What is your response to that? Yeah, so a couple of things. One is that I know exactly what that flag looks like because I see it here in Michigan. I don't know if I ever saw it in Chicago. I'll be honest about that. I don't think I'm going to have. I don't think one's been that. But I've seen it in Michigan. In fact, it was just a, uh, when was that? It was in May. It was in, it was the first week of June. And I was on my way back from the airport, which is all of five miles from my house. And it was, um, it was painted on the back of a pickup truck on like the door that folds down. So it was the Tailgate, whole yeah. entire back of the truck was it, the Confederate flag. How come I could have guessed the type of vehicle it was painted <laughs> on? When you, I drive a truck, but I know it's like, hey, I got a truck. Okay, so you're susceptible to having a rebel flag on your vehicle. Like it's not going to be on a Prius. No one's going to say, hey, I got a Prius. For some reason, the vehicle, yeah, okay. So he's got it on the back of his Dodge. Okay. That I used to drive by in Chicago, actually, that had the rebel flag in the window. Um, but anyway, I wow. said all that to say that the North knows a thing or two, yeah. whether it wants to admit it or not, mm-hmm. it knows about the rebel flag. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's transplants, you know, maybe that's migration, maybe that, I don't know what that is. But um, yes, I don't see it as often as I would if I was in the South, for sure. This mm-hmm. is true. Yes. Um, but I don't want to let the North off the hook. Okay. Okay. So, okay. So you don't let the North off the hook. You've experienced it. You've seen it. You've seen it on the back of someone's truck. What do you think when uh, the governor, uh, Haley, says, okay, we're going to get this down? Okay. What are, you, what are you thinking? I think a couple things. I think it's good, and I think it's not enough. Hmm. I think it's I, – I think particularly on government grounds, and what you put on your house and on your truck really is up to you. Um, on government grounds, that's, that's weird. It's a treasonous flag. It was, it was, it was all about seceding from the United States of America. Okay. Good point. I think it's actually strange that (laughs) we would allow that flag to fly at all. It's, it's really a weird thing. That's yeah. And we, we do it under the guise of like, but states rights, right? Yeah. Okay. Straight states rights to own black people. And if you don't let us own black people, they're going to leave the United States of America. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay. That's kind of like the okay. flag be on the government property. Probably not. That's kind of like the Southern Baptist thing. Like a lot of people point to like the creation of Southern Baptists is because of, you know, missionaries and slavery. And you're like, I'm like, okay, my tradition, I'm from the church of Christ. We're not perfect on this, but our name is not connected to our protest of us not wanting to give our slaves up. It seems like you should just go, yeah, we're just going to go with Baptist, okay? Seems like that might be a decent idea, but that's just me. Call me old-fashioned. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so yes. I, I will also say that because the Confederate flag was about the ability to own slaves, that it feels like a clear statement that my safety is at risk when I see one. So I don't look, um, I I don't see people with the Confederate flag. So the house that I drove by in Chicago, if I was stranded, that would be the last house Hmm. that I would go up to and say, Hey, can I borrow your phone? Yeah. 
Because for me, that is a sign that I am not welcome, that I am not wanted, and that my life might be in danger if we meet in the dark and, you know, there yeah. are no video cameras. Yeah. Hmm. So should someone, should a African-American person have to walk under that flag on their way to work in the state house? I'm thinking, no, that probably shouldn't be. Yeah. That probably shouldn't be. Well, that's, yeah, it's, I, I think it's a good thing we've kind of moved on and, and we're not letting that stay up where it is. So that's a, that's a good thing. Okay. We're, we got to wrap up now. Hey, um, one thing I saw that you're on, um, Rachel and Nadia, they're doing their conference. I'm Aren't so you, excited. That's very exciting. I'm so excited. I have already started writing my talk in my head. When, that's in the fall sometime, right? Yes. It's in September. Oh, good for you. Good for you. Mm-hmm. Now, I feel like it's just going to be really tough. Like if a guy goes there because it's all women speakers and like, <laughs> how could you understand really? Because everyone's voice is different from yours and the illustrations and mm-hmm. there's probably no football references. It's going to be like, oh, almost, can you imagine how awkward that is for a guy to go to a service in which it's all women talking? I can. They're going to... Oh, you can? I can. Because <laughs> women often sit in churches where there are all male speakers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Right on. Well, that's going to be great. So um, that's September. What is it called? Like the uh, It's the Why Christian Conference. Why Christian Conference. And that's Minneapolis? Is that right? It is. Yep. Yeah, right on. There we it's go. Been so much fun. I'm really excited about that one. Well, good. We'll we'll look forward to hearing that. And we need to not let it be another year until you come back on the show. <laughs> no, maybe we shouldn't do it after every tragedy. Maybe we should do it a little more often. Give people reminders. Yes, we I can think help stem the tide a little bit. Yeah, maybe we just went too long, and that's why Charleston happened, and Baltimore, and McKinney. There's the, the list is way too then long. Again. <laughs> Maybe we would have to do one pretty much every day to help. Um, And the next one will be how great white people are. So we don't do all the white supremacists. We'll talk about country music. We will do the great white heroes. Yeah. We'll talk about rodeos and uh, (laughs) Austin. It's fun as always. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.